Hello, and welcome to the Her and Him podcast. I'm Dale. And I am Tamara. And when two theologians get married, what, what you, you get, get is a podcast. We're supposed to do it at the same time. <laughs> I don't know. It's a, it's a brave new world we're living in. I feel in. like the past few podcasts, we've been working on that. Yeah, but it's like always different. Every I'm never sure like quite what to expect. The I'm not last sure that you know like what you're about to dole out. What you get is a podcast. Like that feels like it should be both of us saying it. Okay. Should we just start it from the top? Sure. I'm going to leave all of this in, by the way. Yeah. Hello, and welcome to the Her and Him podcast. I'm Dale. And I'm Tamara. And when two theologians get married, what Wait, you get is a podcast. Is a podcast. <laughs> Okay, we'll just have to try I that again on the next episode. I forgot what my line was. You were looking at me dead in the eye with just <laughs> mouth agape. Uh, well, well, how are you doing over there? You just got one of your vaccination shots, so maybe we can attribute this moment of spaciness to the fact that you got you got the COVID coursing through your veins in the form of a vaccine. Um... Sure, I would love to use that as an excuse, but the reality is, this is just my daily life. Yeah, well, you know, I get creative and then I bail. And then I, bail. <laughs> <laughs> I have a thought. I don't know if I'm going to follow through on it. Here you go. That's, yeah, that's the Tamra way. Yep. And you just swoop in with your creative thoughts, and it makes your life so exciting. I'm very excited. I can see it in your eyes. Well, I am actually excited for this conversation because uh, this is going to be a good old-fashioned theological Bible nerd conversation. A that's... good old-fashioned Dale conversation. Yeah, and it starts with a question that seems like it would have a simple answer because it seems like it is a simple question. What did Jesus accomplish when he died on the cross? The obvious answer is he died for my sins. So that I can be in a right relationship with God. Like, I think that's what most people understand the purpose of Jesus' death to be. Right. And that, I feel like that's the right answer. Uh, yeah. That's the Sunday school answer. It is. But we can dive deeper into, like, what was actually happening when Jesus died on the cross. Like, what was actually cosmologically and theologically happening in the moment when Jesus gave up his spirit and he died. Like when he said, it is finished, what exactly is the it that he was referring to? What is the it that was completed in that moment? Mm -hmm. And how was it completed? And what was the nature of that? And so today on the podcast, I'd love to tackle that question because it's a complicated question. I want to take a, a simple answer and make it very messy and then hopefully at the end, accordion it back up into something simple again. Yes. But before we dive into that, I think it's important for maybe someone who has just come to the faith to ask, why is this question even important in the first place? And that's because the way that you understand the purpose of Jesus's death will actually affect the way that you read a lot of the New Testament and a lot of other passages that have to do with our faith and the way that we stand in relation to Jesus because of his death. So it might feel a little nerdy and like we're diving pretty deep and we're asking questions that 
maybe the average person isn't asking. But I think as we grow into our faith, these become questions that are important to figure out where you stand in your thoughts and also knowing not everyone necessarily has the same view of what was happening when Jesus died and why he died. So these are valuable questions to ask because they do affect the reading of scripture really in your daily life. Yeah. And so really what we're talking about here is uh, we want to give you a good framework for when you look at the Bible. So whenever anyone comes and looks at the Bible, you're coming to it with a theological framework that's pre-existing. Now, that may be a really good theological framework. It might not be a really good theological framework. But it's through the grid of kind of this theological scaffolding that you have that you interpret the the scripture that you're looking at. And then in turn, the scripture that you interpret will then become a part of the theological scaffolding that you then go back and look at the scripture. Uh, And so the the scaffolding is is constantly changing. Mm -hmm. But if the scaffolding is shaped in such a way and you don't realize that it's even there, then it can really hamper you in understanding a text and the different perspectives that it comes from. And so that's what we want to do in a lot of our conversations. Uh, And in particular, in this conversation, it's going to revolve around one keyword, and that word is atonement. When Jesus died, he atoned for our sins. The theological term is atonement. And uh, actually, it's interesting that the English word atonement, I had to look this up because I thought it was dumb. Like I'd heard so many like pastors and preachers use this word and it have this explanation of its origin. And I thought it was so silly that it couldn't be true, but it actually is. The English origin of the word uh, atonement is at one mint, meaning that we were separated in our relationship with God and then we were made at one with one another. And that's where we get the word atonement. I thought that was such a silly word that that's how it became a word, but that's where it came from. And there are different words um, in the Hebrew and the old Testament, in the Greek, in the new Testament, and in the Latin throughout the history of the church that convey this idea. But that's the English word. It's really talking about reconciliation is about talking about bringing two parties back together. And so really the, the long and the short of it is when we look at the death of, and resurrection of Jesus, in that moment, what Jesus accomplished is that there was this um, divide between God and humanity, that we were enemies of God, and because of his death and his resurrection, we are made at one with God. Again, we are reconciled to him. We are brought back into that fold. And so that's what atonement is. The question is, what is the framework for how that actually happened? What was it that was actually going on in that moment that made it so that we could be at one with God again, where sin had separated humanity from God? Yeah, and the obvious answer is the cross, because obviously it was the death and resurrection that allowed us to enter into this relationship to be together with God in our relationship with him. And the question that we're really looking at is... What were the mechanics of that? And like I said earlier, not everyone agrees on this. There have been many explanations throughout church history that are called theories of atonement. And 
you might not have even realized there are other theories of atonement outside of maybe what you've been brought up to believe. Um, But there have been different theories of atonement throughout church history. And currently, I think the bulk of people ascribe to one theory that will sound very familiar to you once we explain it. But it's important to know that before we all ascribed to this one theory, there were several other theories of atonement throughout church history. Yeah, and we're working from a couple of different resources as we kind of explain these. We're going to explain eight theories of atonement. And the first four, they kind of go two and two, and we'll categorize them together. And then the remaining four will kind of be on their own. Um, but we look for, at a couple of different resources, uh, systematic theology books. Uh, we can link to these in our show notes. We looked at uh, the one by Wayne Grunham, and the other one was by Louis Burkhoff. And then I found this really helpful blog article that we'll link to by a guy named Ben Pugh. P-U-G-H. Pugh or Pug? Um, probably or Pugh. Pugh. I would imagine we'll it's go with Pugh. Pugh. We'll link to that one. Uh, that one was really helpful as well. Uh, but each of these eight theories that we'll present uh, have an element of truth, I believe. Yes. But definitely some more than others. There's more truth in some than there is in others. And we'll kind of critique them as we go. Um, I don't think any of them corners the market on what happened in the atonement, the mechanics of that, what was actually transpiring from a cosmological, theological perspective. And so we'll critique them as we go. Yeah, and the first two that we want to talk about, um, we're lumping these two together as objective theories. And the reason we are putting these two together is because they refer to an objective change in the status of humanity as a result of Christ's actions. So they're similar in that way, but we're going to point out what those differences are because they are two different theories. So the first one is satisfaction theory. And so that's the idea. I can't get no. Oh, no. That's not where I was going. (laughs) Okay. The idea of satisfaction theory of atonement was first popularized by Anselm of Canterbury. You used to live on a road named Canterbury. I did. Yes. But your name's not Anselm. No, it's not. So in the late, was, was there an Anselm that lived on your street? I have no idea. I didn't know my neighbors. Okay. I mean, oh, well, he probably moved out because he's a little bit older than you. <laughs> Anyways, he was in the eleventh and the twelfth century. Yes, eleventh and twelfth century is when he lived. Thank you very much. And this really, this theory really came about in his writing. Cur Deus Homo. I could see you like. Starting to freeze up on trying to read the Latin. It basically is Latin for why the God man. It's the second word that tripped me up. So thank you so much for saving me. Yeah, it's deus and not deuce. Yeah, I. (laughs) Okay, we're going to move on. We will link. (laughs) We'll link to this writing in the show notes as well. Just so you can. Oh, it's a goodie. It's a classic. Like you you can research it some more. Yeah. So the theory states that because of sin, there was a depth of honor that humanity owed to God. So humanity was indebted to God because of their sin. And because that debt was so great, it wasn't something that humanity could pay itself. Like we couldn't pay that debt. 
And so when Jesus died on the cross, he satisfied the wrath of God. He was the only one who was able to do that because he was fully God and fully man. And so this debt was a debt that should have been paid for by man, but it only could be paid for by God. So when humanity and deity meet in the person of Jesus, his death satisfies that debt. I feel like you did a really good job of summarizing 300 years of (laughs) theology. It took them like 300 years to get to the clarity of the statement that you just summarized. So it was a debt of sin, a debt of honor owed to God by humanity because of our sin. And so it was a debt that only man should pay, ought to pay, but a debt that only Only God God could pay because God, Jesus is fully God and fully human in one person. He's the only one that could possibly do that. And he did that through his obedient death on the cross. And when he did that, the wrath of God was satisfied, just like the song says. Yes. You know what song I'm talking about? No. Not on that cross when Jesus died. Oh, yeah. The wrath of God was satisfied. <laughs> Thank you. So you're really into, song. Yeah, I'm you're really, really on into it. singing today. I'm on it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and... What's even further in that theory is that because we have come to faith in Jesus, we are identified with him. So that means our debt is paid through him. So it's not even just that he paid our debt and that was resolved in that manner in regards to God no longer has a debt over humanity, but we personally as individuals, as believers, as people who come to faith in Jesus, no longer owe a debt. Because Jesus satisfied that debt. Yeah. And so we were born under the headship of Adam. And Paul talks about this in a couple of different places in 1 Corinthians Mm -hmm. and in Romans, I believe. Yeah. Romans 4. 1 Corinthians 15, I think Romans 4. I'm not sure about Between 4 and 6, somewhere in that neighborhood. It's (laughs) on the left side of my page in the top left column. I'm not sure what chapter I actually know what Bible you're thinking about. I think it's 5. Oh, oh, is it 5? I think so. Um. (laughs) Where it talks about in Adam, everyone dies. Our death is a result of Adam's falling, but all who are in Christ are made alive. So it's like we're under a new headship. Right. We're not in Adam anymore. We are in Christ. We are united to him. And because he is fully God and fully human, he already paid that debt mm-hmm. uh, of honor. That wrath has been removed from us and we can be reconciled to God. We can be at one with God again. (laughs) Our sins are atoned for in that way. So that's the satisfaction theory. One that is very similar to it, which came into vogue about 500 years later um, by the pen of Martin Luther, is called penal substitution. And now penal substitution, uh, you may have heard that term, you might not have. But if you open up pretty much any systematic theology that's been written in the last 100 years or something, and they have a chapter on atonement— uh, they might not say the word penal substitution, but that's probably what they're talking about. Like if you look in, I think in both Grudem and Burkhoff. Yeah, they both. They said, this is what atonement is. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about penal substitution. And then they had, and here are some divergent theories of atonement or some other theories of atonement. And the implication being like, these are the wrong ones. So this is kind of like the main one that was first popularized by Martin Luther and it's very similar to Anselm's, Anselm's satisfaction mm-hmm. theory in that there was a debt that would need to be paid by humanity. And Jesus took all that wrath on himself. 
so that that debt could be paid because he's fully God and fully human. He's the only one who could pay that debt. The way that this view differs a little bit, it's pretty nuanced, but the main difference is in the way that Jesus' innocence is made the main emphasis of the atonement. Whereas Anselm was emphasizing Jesus' humanity and deity. And God's wrath. And yeah, Martin Luther is emphasizing Jesus' innocence and the wrath that was poured out Mm -hmm. on Jesus' innocence in our stead, on our account. And so this is where we get that kind of Reformation idea of double imputation, that all my sin was imputed, was imparted, was given to Jesus, and all of his righteousness was imputed was to given me. to us, right? Yeah, and so this is different because Anselm would say that, that God didn't necessarily find any, you know, it's called satisfaction theory, but he didn't find any joy, he didn't find any satisfaction in pouring out wrath on Jesus, only that that was a necessary part of Jesus's obedience as he identified with us and paid that debt. Whereas Luther would say that because God of God's righteous character, it did please the Father to pour out all of his wrath on Jesus, even though Jesus was his only son and in very nature God. And so Martin Luther really emphasizes more of the like legal forensic aspects of this, mm-hmm. whereas Anselm, it was more existential relational. Like there was this wrath that needed to be removed and set aside. And because Jesus was fully God and fully man, he could absorb that and set it aside. And the emphasis is really on the relational aspect of that. Whereas Martin Luther was, it was about a legal debt. And so it's very forensic mm-hmm. in his language. So I don't it's, know, I don't know if we made the, the nuances and the differences clear enough, but that, <laughs> that's about what it is. Yeah. They're, they're subtle enough, but it's important that we review both of them. And there's nothing wrong with really either one of these understandings. I think Luther just takes what Anselm was saying and, and takes it a bit further. Mm-hmm. You could almost like div- create, yeah. say that it's like an addendum to in a right. lot of ways. And there's some people who are very theologically educated that would be like, well, no, it's actually different because you see. And then they push their glasses <laughs> up. In my, under- in like a very like just common understanding, they're almost saying the same thing, but in a couple different ways. Right. And so these views are certainly biblically supported and attested to in the church, but their weakness is in how we apply it. So when we reduce the entire gospel to penal substitution, then we have a reductionist understanding of the gospel. It's sort of a simplistic and flat understanding of exactly what Jesus did. And that leaves out a bunch of other biblical data that we see in the New Testament about what the death of Jesus really meant and how it changed our relationship with God, like ours meaning humanity. And so this is where the next couple of theories of atonement help us feel, fill those gaps out. And so if you've been brought up in this understanding of penal substitution, don't think that you need to just completely throw it out the window because there's, it's, it's supported biblically but I think there are a few other things that we need to be mindful of when we understand what it really meant for Jesus to die on the cross and how that affected our relationship with God. Yeah, so I wouldn't pit penal substitution or satisfaction either against each other or 
necessarily against the other theories of atonement. Now, there's really only one other theory of atonement of the six remaining that we're going to talk about that I think holds enough water that I would say this is true and that is true. Mm. For the other five, I would say this is true and parts of these other ones yeah, are some true. Of the, some but of the I other ones are really weak, I would yeah, say. But I would say, argument. like, hey, they, they have some kind of a corrective or hmm. directive piece to them that, hey, I'm like, oh, hey, I can appropriate that and take that little piece out and add it into my own theory of atonement, which yeah. includes penal substitution satisfaction, but is got a lot more going on to mm-hmm. it. And I don't think, even though these are different visions of it, uh, are necessarily at odds. And so the next two that we'll talk about fall under this category of another Latin phrase, Christus Victor, which is a Latin phrase that means Christ the Victor. And there's two flavors of Christus Victor, uh, a good flavor and a bad flavor. I love how you call them flavors. Yeah, it's like chocolate and butternut squash. Like one is clearly superior to the other if you're getting a scoop of ice cream. Dale hates butternut squash, by the way. Yeah, and just the thought of making butternut squash ice cream just made my stomach wretch. Like butternut squash mint ice cream is like one of them. And the other one's Rocky Road. I don't know what just happened. (laughs) That's that's a metaphor you can take to the bank. I mean, that's a good one. Okay, so we'll start with the bad one. And uh, we should say before we dive into these two theories of atonement, both the good one and the bad one, they were held long before Anselm in... Mm in the uh, 11th and 12th century, long before um, Luther Luther in the 1500s. These kind of date back to the earliest parts of the church. Uh, and, and not so much seeing the, the wrath part of this, but seeing Christ's victory in his death, actually. Mm-hmm. And so we'll start with the bad flavor first, and that is the ransom to Satan theory. The name itself makes me uncomfortable. So... This is the bad one, in case you were wondering. The ransom. It was like a cosmic heist movie. Uh, yeah. The ransom. It's like Rush Hour, but with the devil. Thank you. The ransom to I'm on it Satan with the metaphor theory. Today. Can you These let me finish <laughs> no. my sentence? This is real life, people. This is normally how it you goes. You keep pausing, and I keep putting stuff in the pauses because you give me time to think about it. Okay, stop thinking just for a moment. The ransom to Satan theory of atonement. (laughs) That was quick. No pauses. Which can be attributed to earliest to Origen who lived in the second and third century. Yep, and Origen was a weird dude. Right. I mean, the the one thing that is seared into my brain about Origen, and he was certainly on the outs with the church uh, for a lot of different things that he thought and one is that he was so like sexually repressive that he like like did it all did a whole castration thing on himself i was gonna say there's a name for that yeah it's called castration i feel like me making a a a slashing movement with my arm going like you get it you understand yes so weird dude but here's what he thought let me tell you about his theory on atonement So he states that humanity was being held captive by Satan until Jesus came. And so Jesus's death was ransom that was paid by God to Satan in order to set humanity free from the captivity of sin and death. So there's a lot of issues with this theory, and I'm sure you are thinking of a million and one as you're hearing me talk. But one of the main issues is 
it really gives Satan way too much credit and way too much power. Satan is not the chief architect of hell or the person who delivers judgment. Judgment only comes from God. And so Satan at no point has ever had God on the ropes in such a way. Satan never had the power play against God. And this theory would suggest that Satan was the one who was holding all of the power. And until God did something that he wanted, all of humanity was underneath the power of Satan. And so this is where the next theory helps iron out those issues. Yeah. And so the next theory, which is the good one, is recapitulation. And this was kind of first popularized by Irenaeus uh, a little bit earlier than Origen, but around the same time in the second century. And in this theory of atonement, Jesus is seen as recapitulating, that's a big word, or like refiguring the the human experience. It's like, like God takes on humanity, and, and to put it in crude terms, he performs like the world's greatest do-over of what Adam failed to do, of what Israel failed to do. He's perfect and obedient in his humanity. And when he completes his obedience at the moment of his death, that's when he's victorious over Satan, who has been tempting him to fall into the same trap as Adam did. And so as we come into Christ, our humanity is reconstituted from that that separated state that we were in when we were in Adam, now that we are in Christ, that we're reunited to God in Christ because he has reconstituted what it means to be human. And so we see Jesus' death in this framework less as a moment of defeat, wrath, judgment, and more as a moment of victorious obedience. And so this view of Jesus' life and death, I think it isn't counter to those objective theories. But I do think that if we can fold this in, and, and some of it almost feels contradictory, like this is his moment of victorious obedience that he defeated Satan in this moment. But also at the same time, the wrath of God is poured out on him for our sins. Those kind of seem contradictory, but I think the Bible presents both of those frameworks theologically that um, we have to be able to accommodate both of those things right. in some form or another. Not the ransom to Satan. That's silly. But the <laughs> That's a kind way to put it. That's but, silly. <laughs> but the the fact that Christ is victorious in his death. That was a victorious moment for him. Right. And that actually goes back to our podcast that we did on Good Friday and talking about understanding what the death of Christ meant and how we should remember that and how we should, I guess for lack of better terms, how we should feel on Good Friday and instead of this somber, sad day, we should remember that Christ was victorious and that happened during his death and not just his resurrection. Yes. Like the victory of Christ was at his death. And sometimes I think we want to separate the death and resurrection out and say, no, it was the resurrection that was victorious, not the death. And I don't think that falls in line of scripture. Right, yeah. So in this podcast, we're pulling back the curtain a little bit. Mm -hmm. As we pulled off the penal substitution goggles and looked at the crucifixion account 
and also Psalm 22 mm-hmm. that Jesus was hearkening back to. Right. What we end up with is something that is much more in line with the Christus Victor. Uh, we didn't necessarily start there with that, but you kind of get there from just following the text where it goes. Uh, and so then we kind of can assimilate that back into our, our theological framework as we talked about earlier. So that's the first four. The first four. That's the objective ones. Satisfaction, penal substitution. There's Christus Victor, Ransom to Satan. Leave that Just one on the side of the road. That one's fine. forget about that one. And recapitulation, which actually I think is kind of like the the actual Christus Victor mm. kind of understanding. Right. I mean, Origen was later called out as a heretic and, you know, a lot of his writings are suspect. So I think the main one, Irenaeus is, you know, mm-hmm. a church father who is highly respected and... I wasn't the originator of this idea, but would certainly popularize it with a lot of his writings in right. the very early going. From here, the theories of atonement get decidedly less compelling. Yes. The next three are not fantastic. No. They have some good insights, but they're missing a lot of good stuff. They're missing a whole lot, so you cannot camp out on just these three theories by themselves. They, you so, absolutely cannot. I think in many ways, Christus Victor, uh, recapitulation, uh, as well as either satisfaction or penal substitution, they kind of can stand up on their own legs. Right. And you can hold an entire conversation and not be missing anything by I- explaining the gospel through th- those lenses. I think you get the full picture when they're all together. Mm-hmm. These next three, uh, they they don't stand on their own two feet. No. So one of those three is called moral influence. This was first advocated by a man named Peter Abelard, who was a contemporary of Anselm in the 11th and 12th centuries. So we're talking the 10s and the 11s. Yes. I had to look that one up. This theory states that it wasn't actually necessary for God to die for our sins. His death was really just a display of how much he loves us, that he would be willing to endure all of the sufferings of humanity by living as a human and dying a human death. Right. It wasn't necessary for Jesus to actually sacrifice his life. Right. But it's almost like in, in a certain sense, the, the incarnation itself constituted the means of atonement between us and God. The fact that God took on human form in the person of Jesus in, in this theory of atonement, that that was actually itself the means of atonement itself. And they didn't actually need to die that we were atoned with God once through faith Jesus in Jesus, born. right, and his death was just this ultimate display of the the measure to which Jesus was willing to identify with us in our humanity, and the measure to which he loved us that he would die this horrible, gruesome death. And, and the death itself isn't the means of atonement, but his life, his incarnation, was the means of atonement. But the issue there is from a functional perspective, how do we enter back into relationship with God if his death wasn't necessary and if his death didn't matter based on this moral influence understanding? There's just a lot of holes. Yeah, it's just kind of like wave of the the hand forgiveness, which uh, everything that we know about God's character and his righteousness that doesn't seem to jive necessarily mm-hmm. and, and even the way jesus's death is spoken of in the new testament uh and him being a propitiation which means a covering for sin right that um that he died for sinners there's verses and, and things we can pick up on that there was something meaningfully happening in jesus's death and it wasn't just this grand gesture to show how much he loved us 
In right. some way, it was a grand gesture to show how much he loved us, but it wasn't just that. Like, God isn't like a really like toxic ex-boyfriend. <laughs> it's going to like self-harm just so that mm-hmm. you'll think he loves you. Mm-hmm. No, there was actually something that he was paying. And I think one of the huge factors that we can see in the New Testament that would say there's major issues with the moral influence theory is on the day that Jesus died, the curtain in the temple was torn. And that was a sign or an understanding that you no longer had to go through anyone in order to access God. You now had direct connection to God. That relationship was was restored. And so we see that in a very real way on the day that Jesus died. So to understand moral influence theory as an all-encompassing theory, it falls short of so many other biblical passages and really what we understand the death of Jesus to be. So yes, Jesus came and it was out of his love. I mean, we see that in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. So it's not to say there's nothing true in the moral theory, moral influence theory, but it misses just about everything else that is the meat of the death of Jesus. Right. It just kept the uh, kind of the it kept the, the nice fluffy, it kept the facade of the building and then just demolished the rest of it. Right. It kept the nice fluffy like, oh, Jesus loves you. Well, yes, but there's so much more to that than just saying he did it out of love boils down to. Yeah. So that one's got some good ideas, but ultimately yeah, like remember fa- Jesus did it out of love for you and then throw everything else away. Right, yeah. The next one is very similar. It's called the example theory of atonement. And again, this one is kind of along those same lines. It says that it wasn't actually necessary for Jesus to die for our sins in order for our sins to be forgiven. This one was popularized by Faustus Socinus, and his followers were known as the Socinians, which was not a good group to be hanging out with. But good old Faustus, he said that it wasn't necessary, again, for Jesus to die for our sins in order for our sins to be forgiven. But Jesus died and went to the cross in obedience with what the Father had commanded him as this great show of obedience that through Christ, this is the the measure to which we are called to be obedient. And by the power of Jesus, the measure to to which we can be obedient to God and, and restore our relationship with him, and so Jesus, God forgave our sins, even apart from the death of Jesus. But that death was a an example of the kind of obedience we should have, could have, and, and can have in Jesus. And so it's, it's kind of the same thing, but instead of Jesus died to show how much He loves you, Jesus died to show you how obedient you should be, which in a lot of ways is worse. I was to say, I think this one is way worse. Because it's just ridiculous to say Jesus came just to teach you a lesson and his death was just for the sake of teaching you a lesson. It just seems ridiculous. But I do see a point in there in that as we look on the faithfulness of Jesus and what was the measure of Jesus's faithfulness, the ultimate to the measure point of death. to the point right. that, I mean, even Paul talks about this in Philippians too, mm-hmm. that have this mind among you, which is yours in Jesus Christ, though he was in the very form of God, took on the form of a servant and having been made in the form of a servant was obedient to death, even death on the cross. And therefore God raised him up. And so Paul is saying, have this mind among you, um, 
this this mind of loving one another and serving God in obedience even to the point of death. So there is an example there, but that's not the whole point. That's like and a it's subsidiary not even the prime, right? Yeah, right. The next one again is very similar. It's called the governmental theory of atonement. And this one was popularized in the 16th century. And I forgot to say the example theory and uh, the example theory was also in the 16th century. The moral influence was we went through that one around the time of Anselm. Yeah. So here we are in kind of like the the Reformation era with uh, example theory and governmental, which was popularized by Hugo Grotius. And it kind of follows that same trend line. Again, Jesus's death didn't actually accomplish anything, but uh, this one gets a little bit convoluted in that it says it wasn't necessary for Jesus to die in order for God to forgive our sins. He just did wave of a hand. Your sins are forgiven. But because God wanted to show that he is a good and just governor of the universe, he needed to, uh, I guess, make an example of Jesus to show, like, this is the measure to which I'm against sin is my son will take on a punishment that everyone would have deserved had you not been forgiven. But it didn't actually accomplish that forgiveness. There was nothing of our sin that was imputed to him in that moment. There's nothing of his righteousness that was imputed to us in that moment. It was just this example, wave of the hand, you're forgiven, but look at what sin causes. It's very dramatic. Yeah, so it kind of just turns the whole thing into a just a work of theater. Right. This one, I, I have a hard time finding any redeeming quality. Well, and in. it's offensive and it cheapens the gospel in every way you can think of. I don't like it. <laughs> I got issues with it. I don't know why it's making me angry. <laughs> yeah, it just, it, it doesn't make sense. Um, I don't even think there's any, any good things we can glean from this one. I tried to pull something good from everything, uh, in everyone in this list, but um, I don't think this one passes the smell test in any sense. No. Okay, so moving on to the last one then. One more. Now, this one is interesting. And for both of you who are still listening, this is the one that uh, (laughs) I think doesn't get it right because it misses a lot, but it still has something instructive to say, I believe. This is called the nonviolent atonement. And this is the most recent of all the theories uh, of atonement that has come into vogue. And... Again, while it ultimately falls short, I, I think it has something interesting. And it was popularized by a guy named Rene Girard in the mid-20th century. And more recently, even kind of into the present, by a guy named Denny Weaver. Yeah, and this theory states that the emphasis in our understanding of how we are reconciled rests less on Jesus' death and more on his life. So Jesus was not born to die. He was born to live. And to live perfectly. You ever heard that phrase? He was born to die. We hear that on Christmas. But Jesus was not born to die. He was born to live. Right. Changing that understanding of Jesus is helpful. I agree. But prior to Jesus, the world had been trapped in this cycle of sin and of violence and death. And the devil has been perpetuating that cycle. Like we've continued to see this really since the fall. In Genesis 3, these things have continued to be part of humanity, like second nature to what we experience. There's never been a century or a time period that didn't deal with the cycle of 
sin, violence, and death. Yeah, and the idea is that Satan has been cultivating this through temptation and just all the, all the works of Satan have been cultivating a, a continuous cycle of sin, violence, death. And we see that in Genesis over and over and over right. again. And so that cycle, it seems like it would continue unbroken in perpetuity. Until Jesus, because Jesus was born and he lived and he lived a perfect life. He didn't live in sin and you don't see the issue of violence and death in the way that we understand death. And so Jesus came and he actually broke that cycle. So if it weren't for him, we would continue to be living in this cycle over and over and over again. And we would have no hope. And it's Jesus who came and broke that cycle. So we can I, we can see truths of that. That we have this hope in Jesus to be free of sin and death and violence. Yeah, and really the proof of that is, isn't so much in Jesus' death... But in, in his, his resurrection. Right. Because Jesus lived a perfect sinless life. And so it seemed that he had broken that cycle. But then he got killed. Right. But then he rose again, proving mm-hmm. that the cycle indeed has been broken. He rose to an incorruptible body. And Paul talks about this in a number of different places that we will be raised, resurrected into an incorruptible body because of that, that the cycle of sin, violence, and death is broken in Jesus. And so really the upshot of all of this is that Jesus' death doesn't really matter that much. It's all about his resurrection. It only matters insofar as it set the stage for his resurrection. And so that's the nonviolent theory of atonement, that the Mm -hmm. atonement actually wasn't in the violence of, of the death of the death of Jesus yeah but it was in the breaking of the cycle of sin violence and death in the perfect person of Jesus who is fully God and fully human therefore we identify in him and so mm-hmm. our own cycle is broken and will be broken uh, when we reach resurrection life uh, when Jesus returns yeah and weaver would go as far as to say that his death actually didn't accomplish anything in that moment right like i'm with you until you say that <laughs> That's where I'm like, mm, I, I, you had an interesting like way of presenting yeah. this, and then I, you lost me at that part. Right, because his view is it's all about Jesus's obedience and that breaking the cycle of death and sin and violence. And then, like you said, and then he died. And then he was resurrected, and we really see the fullness of that. But the death wasn't really anything that we should focus on. It wasn't meaningful in any way. And... Certainly, scripture doesn't support that. That there was just no meaning behind his death. There's too much. There's too many Bible verses right. that talk about the meaning of Jesus's death that we we can't discard it in such a way and say, well, it's not really the thing. It's not really the main thing. It's like, yes, it is the main thing. It's it's integral to what occurred at atonement and how we are atoned and how we are reconciled to God. It's it's significant. It's not just a comma or a, an ellipse to the resurrection. There's something that actually happened on that Friday. Right. And in defense of this theory to some degree is when we look at the way that the disciples and the gospels present Jesus and everything that was fulfilled through him is you see this understanding of pointing to the Old Testament and this promise of the Messiah, the promise of the one who is going to set them free, who is going to bring hope. And then it talks about the death, but really we see a lot of emphasis on the resurrection because that's where 
the completion of everything that they had been longing for comes from the resurrection. And I think maybe too often we focus on the death when we're presenting the gospel to non-believers. We talk about how like Jesus died for your sin. Like you should be so grateful. You need to come to faith because Jesus died for you. And we forget that he resurrected. Like there's more in the story than just Jesus dying. And we want to really push people to come to faith because we want to remind them or to tell them, maybe they don't even know, about how Jesus paid for their debt and he died for them. Like he went to the the furthest extreme that he could have gone for the sake of them. And we put all of the emphasis there and we don't really share about the resurrection piece where in the New Testament we see a lot about the excitement and the victory of the resurrection. Yeah, I've actually heard on more than one occasion that the gospel presented, you know, by many different pastors where it's it's like, you know, Jesus died for your sins. So you put your trust in him so that you can have eternal life or you can go to heaven or you won't go to hell is, you know, probably a less desirable way to put it, but we've heard that way sometimes. Um, And they never get around to actually talking about the fact that Jesus rose from Mm. the dead. Yeah. That your eternal life isn't necessarily, it's not tied to Jesus' death apart from Jesus' resurrection. Right. Like your life is tied up in Jesus' resurrection. Mm -hmm. That Paul talks about he's the first fruits Mm. of those who have been raised from the dead. Right. Like he's the first of of, of the crop of of humanity that is going to be raised from the dead. That's the story. That's when the, the disciples were waiting for the Messiah. They weren't waiting for someone who was going to come and die for them. That's what happened. That's what they needed. They didn't realize it. But they're waiting for someone who was going to usher in a new kingdom and was going to give them an everlasting kind of life. And that happens by the resurrection. And so uh, I think the necessary corrective in this is that, yeah, we we can talk about the death of Jesus all day long, but if we're not talking about the resurrection, then we're <laughs> we're missing out the most important yeah. component of of the story. And so not to say that death doesn't matter or there wasn't something cosmological happening in that moment that the veil was torn, that there was something that happened um, that, that leads to our atonement. But really the, the story is the resurrection. Right. And so we hope this was helpful in the way you understand really the gospel message of what Jesus came to do and how that actually came about because it will change the framework by which you share the gospel to someone. And so we need to take those theological lenses off that we already had going into really the story of Jesus, be able to place those aside and look at everything that scripture is pointing us to. And I think just about all eight of these theories, not all of them, there's a couple of them that we just need to throw it all together. Like the ransom for Satan, throw that out. There's a couple of rotten eggs in there. <laughs> right. But the other ones, even if they weren't as full and robust as some of the other ones, there are certainly pieces and aspects that we can understand. And the main issue is as we begin to study theology and even the very definition of systematic theology is we want to take theology and put it into systems and create little boxes that are really nice and pretty and tie them with a bow. And so we have to boil down what 
did the death mean? How did it happen? And so that's where we come out with these theories, but they all seem to be missing something in terms of what's presented in the Bible. And it's good to have systematic theology. We need it. We also need to be aware of the flaws that occur with systematic theology because it's something that we as humans created and it's not something we see in the Bible. The Bible itself isn't a book of systematic theology like here is what we believe about angels. Here is what we believe about the atonement. Here's and it's just not it, it's an unfolding story that we get to read. And so we need to do our best to read it as it's presented to us. Thanks for listening to the Her and Him podcast. If you enjoyed hanging out with us, consider subscribing to the podcast to receive it automatically each week. Also be sure to head over to our website, hernhim.com, and you can get show notes for this episode, read our blogs, and other helpful resources. We'd also love to hear from you, so you can email us at herandhimblog at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we will see you next time. Do you ever hear sayings make their way through the culture and the church that seem nice in theory, but are actually theologically problematic? My name is Shara Donahue, and I'm the host of The Bible Never Said That, a podcast where we examine these popular sayings under the lens of biblical truth. We cover sayings like, God won't give you more than you can handle, time heals all wounds, and follow your heart. We also spend time exploring how people use Bible verses out of context. If you want to grow in discernment and truth, join us and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.